Well, friends, it's, uh, it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, if this is your first time here, welcome. It's great to have you here. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I get the privilege of looking at God's Word with you today. And You know, it's funny. Sometimes as a pastor, uh, sermon illustrations, like, they like smack you in the face. And uh, this was one of those weeks. Because here we are preaching on eye for an eye. And uh, earlier in the week, I asked one of the boys to hand me my cell phone. They said, sure. Threw up my direction right as I turned my face and took the cell phone right to the eye with a nice shiner to say thank you. And there's this moment where I'm like, I'm like screaming and writhing in agony. And it, you know, it's like, ah, how did this happen? What, what should I respond with? What should I do? And in that moment, I'm reminded that every time we endure offenses, difficulties, or challenges, One of the great questions we can ask is, how am I supposed to respond? What am I supposed to do in light of this thing uh, that just happened? Add to that the fact that we as a culture are one that uh, specializes in many ways in in retribution and retaliation. Uh, When I lived in Seattle, one of the things that used to crack me up were what they called spite houses. Has anybody heard of these? Uh, Basically, they're houses that are built strategically in order to injure the property value of a neighbor. So uh, this would be, so my favorite story of the Spite House in Seattle is a husband and a wife who divorced, and in that divorce, the wife, through a crooked turn of events, ended up being awarded the front yard of the house. And so what did she do? She built a house just tall enough to block her husband's view and completely eliminating his property value. And I mean, we laugh at that stuff and we chuckle, but we face that stuff all the time, right? What, what, what do we do when we're wronged? How do we retaliate or respond or uh, look in the eye the difficulties and the challenges that we face in this life? And it's those questions that are radically confronted in us as we look at the passage today. Now, if you're just joining us this weekend, we are in the midst of this sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount that we're calling Apprenticing the Way of Jesus. Throughout this entire sermon series, we've been suggesting you that in this greatest sermon ever written, the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 to chapter 7, he is radically inviting us to live in a different way. He is radically inviting us to apprentice his way of life in every way of being, an invitation to recognize that because of the presence of the kingdom of heaven, everything we thought we knew about how the world has worked has fundamentally changed. We looked at that, first of all, in the Beatitudes and their uh, perspective recalibrating effect, the way in which they invite us to look at life through a new set of lenses. As we come into the section we find ourselves in, this section known as the fulfillers, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to bring us back to the intention and the purpose behind each of the laws in the scriptures. He's radically confronting the the attitudes of the Pharisees that believed that transformation happened uh, from the outside in, that transformation was all about changing the external action rather than the inner transformation of the heart. And in this particular passage, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to remind us of a very important reality and principle that I think is so powerful for the way we interact with people in our lives. And it would simply be this, that Jesus' passion for relationship calls us to go the extra mile by embracing inconvenience. Again, Jesus' passion for relationship calls us to go the extra mile and embrace inconvenience. 
In order to help us understand that, I think what he'll do is Jesus begins by reminding us of the law's outlook on retaliation. He takes us back to the original purpose of the law. In verse 38, we we find the words of Jesus where he says, and you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And what may not be immediately apparent is that Jesus is actually quoting a section of scripture that appears three different times in Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus. Three passages that all deal with the identity and the presence of the law. Perhaps one of the most telling is found in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 20 to 21, where we're told, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to, be- but to death. It's interesting because in the ancient world, these laws of retributive justice were not unique to those of Israel. They, we find in things like the Code of Hammurabi uh, similar principles that uh, when there is an injury, the response is to take a similar uh, thing in retaliation. And this led the Pharisees to believe that in the event of injury, they were free to retaliate when and how they wanted. But the larger council of the law pointed them in a radically different direction. I mean, we asked the question, what was the law's perspective on retaliation? And one of the things that we find out as we read through the Old Testament is that it essentially did two primary things. Uh, First of all, the law did make provision for retribution, but it was always to be carried out in due process. In fact, what makes this law in the Old Testament stand out from all of the um, nations around it was the emphasis that it puts on uh, the matter being heard by a tribunal, the matter being heard by a council that would evaluate what the response should be. But also, it was designed to limit the response to that which was reasonable and fair. The original purpose of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth was not uh, some blanket way that somebody could justify retaliating against another person. Rather, it was always designed to be a resource and a tool to limit justice to that which is fair and right. In fact, one of the things that we find again and again throughout the scriptures is that the personal expression of vengeance was expressly prohibited by the law. For example, consider the words of Leviticus 19.18 where we're told, you shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Fascinating stuff. You shall not take vengeance against your neighbor. He's saying, uh, you don't have the right in your culture to retaliate when you're wrong. There is a process. There is a system that you are to work through as a holy member of the nation of Israel. By the way, isn't it interesting that not only are are they um, discouraged from taking vengeance, but they're also discouraged from bearing a grudge against the the sons of your people. But what's the response? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You ever think about that? That from the beginning and the foundations of the Old Testament, part of God's design and desire was that the love for one's neighbor is the primary ethic, the primary center upon which all human relationships evolve. That's why this statement is so often misunderstood, even in our culture today. 
You know, haven't you heard people say that? Look, I've been offended eye for an eye. I mean, they said something mean to me, so I get to say something rude back. Or, or things like, you know, uh, if, they, if they, like, slam my car door in the parking lot, you know, I get to open my door just a little harder in their direction as well. Or when you're getting on the freeway and somebody cuts you off in traffic, well, if the opportunity presents itself, well. Or is there something greater at work with the presence and the reality and the identity of this kingdom of heaven that is at hand among the people of God. Again, for the Pharisees, the necessary response was to seek revenge, but Jesus invites us to a much better way. The focus was taken off of what one had lost, and rather, um, the focus was shifted back to the relationship. And it's here that we are radically invited back to the kingdom perspective on what it is that we are to do when we are wronged. We find it in verse 39. Jesus stands over and against the wisdom of the Pharisees, and he calls us to live in a radically different way when he says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And as you might imagine, as people have wrestled with this passage throughout church history, one of the big questions that always comes up is, what exactly does Jesus mean by the word resist? Well, in the Greek, uh, this word to resist literally means uh, to fight back in return. It's the process of retaliating or defending oneself in response to an injury that's been endured. And Jesus is instructing us that we are not to resist even the one who is evil and ultimately to entrust our case to God. Now, one of the most practical questions that comes up at this point is, is Jesus justifying or is Jesus suggesting absolute pacifism in this point? And as I've studied, I've come to the point of saying, I, I don't know for sure. I think great arguments can be made on both sides of the aisle. But here's what I can say. The, the grammatical structure of the Greek emphasizes for us that the response to fight back in return is always to be garnered in the relationship or in the perspective of a focus on relationship. So what does that look like at the most practical level? As I sat with that this week, like how do we live that out? What does that look like practically? And here's what I want to suggest to you, is that the kingdom perspective on retaliation in my mind is this powerful invitation to go the extra mile by choosing inconvenience. Go the extra mile by choosing convenience because we emphasize and recognize the importance of the relationship. We make an intentional decision to take the next step in order to show love and grace even when we are offended. So uh, what is inconvenience then? You know, I love the definition from the Cambridge Dictionary when it tells us this, that it is a state or an example of problems or trouble often causing a delay or loss of comfort. Part of what happens is that when we are offended, what it requires is that it requires us to be interrupted. It requires our convenience, our comfort, our reputation to suffer. And in those moments, is the gut-level response to simply retaliate by doing the same? 
or is it to live in a radically different way? And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to point this towards four choices that this kind of attitude will make. Four choices of what embracing inconvenience looks like. I think the first is that we're invited to choose inconvenience by enduring insults. Uh, He tells us in verse 39, but if anyone uh, slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You know, it's interesting because in the ancient world, uh, this process of uh, hitting someone on the cheek or slapping them is uh, one that was regarded as one of the highest expressions of insult. It was so bad that it was prohibited by the law. In fact, when I think about this and its context, the image I get is, you know in those old Bugs Bunny cartoons where they pick up the little glove and they slap the guy across the face? I mean, that's, that's kind of the original context of what is being talked about here. And the expected response is that, well, the other person would grab a glove and slap them back. But Jesus invites into something else. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the right also. In fact, or turn to him the other also. It's interesting because we read this passage and we're asking, what is Jesus asking of us here? And again, I think it's important to understand that when we look at this text, the action here is not primarily about the slap, but about the insult. That when we're insulted, is our response to insult back? Or is our response to simply turn the other cheek and to trust that God, in his way, in his time, will settle the score. Again, it takes me all the way back to the beatitude we looked at earlier about meekness, where we're told that blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who recognize that the one who ultimately settles the score on reputation is God. Because when we are drinking from the well of God's love and affirmation, there is an amazing ability to endure hardship Because we know God's got it. Now, we might ask the question then. So then, is Jesus prohibiting any kind of consequence against uh, wrongs or difficulties or crimes that are committed against us? And I don't think so. But again, given the context of the Old Testament, I think what he's inviting us to recognize is that the one who is ultimately responsible for settling the score is God, and that often he does that through the magistrates and through the governmental system. And that our response is to look to due process, to look and trust that God will be faithful in settling the score in his way, in his time. But I want you to catch what is so beautiful about Jesus' response here. So powerful. Notice how he transcends the temptation to become a victim in this section. We don't just turn the other cheek. We make the choice to do it, and we offer it. It brings an integrity and a dignity that so powerfully reveals the heart of God. And it's here that Jesus is going to point us towards the second way that we're invited to go the extra mile. He's going to invite us to embrace inconvenience by valuing people more than things. In verse 40, we find, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. By the way, did you notice the inversion that's happened at this point in the text? 
In verse 39, uh, it was you who were the person being slapped. Now you're the one who's being sued. And uh, what's happening here is the person is calling for your tunic, for the outer garment of your cloak. Uh, in the Old Testament, this process of giving a one's cloak was an incredible expression of hospitality. In fact, the law actually protects against the giving of one's innermost garments because they were considered essential for life. To offer one's cloak was to offer so much more than what was being asked for and to show an even greater good because of the power of relationship. You know, as I, I've wrestled with this, for me, the, the example of this that has always stuck with me it was 20 years ago when I was serving in my first youth pastorate. Uh, my senior pastor at that time had just built a home. And he built a retaining wall, gorgeous retaining wall, on the side of the property. Shortly after that, uh, a neighbor came and built a home next to his, and they redrew the property lines. And when they did it, there was a dispute as to whether or not the retaining wall was on the new neighbor's property or on the pastor's. And you know what he did? He moved the wall at great personal expense. And I asked him, why? Why in the world would you do that? And never forget. He said, I would rather move the wall than to let a wall exist in our relationship. I would rather move the wall than to let a wall exist in our relationship. I mean, what would it look like if we began to live that way in the places where we are wrong? Where we were willing to suffer the offense and trusted that there is nothing that we can give to another that goes beyond the graciousness and the goodness of God to restore. What would it look like if rather than just simply looking to stuff we saw the beauty and the goodness of the relationships that God has placed around us. And it's here then that I, we come to maybe one of the most well-known of all of these sections. When we're invited to choose inconvenience by serving beyond obligation. In verse 41, Jesus calls us to a radical kind of love. Oh, the one you've probably uh, heard of where he says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. As you likely know, in the Old Testament and in the Roman world, what would happen is uh, that the Roman government could conscribe citizens in order to walk with them or to carry uh, material up to a mile. And the response of Jesus is that if you find yourself in that position, don't just go one mile. Go to. You know, there's a reality that oftentimes in the journey of following Jesus, we will be called upon to do things that we don't like. All kinds of things. I mean, everything from, we might walk into church and somebody else is sitting in our chair, to uh, we, might, we might be in a place where we see a neighbor who is struggling and everything in us tells us to turn the other way and to just act like nothing's happening. 
But instead, the call of the gospel calls us to see them and to step into that need. There may be times that we're required to be vulnerable, honest, transparent about the struggle because we know that it is a blessing to another. And rather than keeping up the pretension of the image of who we think we need to be, we make the choice to see them as they are. Again, the the list could go on and on of what it looks like to live graciously, to not just go one mile, but to go two. I I think what lie at this is what is our attitude in how we do it? When we, when we are called upon to do something we don't like, you know, do we like drag our feet? Oh, can't believe I have to do this. Or is it, you know what? Whatsoever you did unto the least of these, we did unto who? Christ. An invitation to recognize that when we are doing anything for the sake of the gospel, we transform and make holy that interaction because we are bearing witness to the presence of the resurrected Christ. And what message does it send to the world when the body of Christ joyfully and full of life makes the decision to say, this is what love requires and I'm willing to love even more. What a powerful powerful illustration of the grace and the mercy of God in our life. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He invites us to recognize a forced choice, to recognize that we are invited to inconvenience by giving generously. We're told, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You know, this is an invitation to a powerful kind of generosity. And it's an invitation to recognize that when we see people, we see need. When we see people, the temptation is not to close our heart, but to respond in love and grace and charity. I love the words I I once heard a speaker say, you've heard of John 3.16. Have you heard 1 John 3.16? 1 John 3.16 says this, that if anyone has the world's goods and he closes his heart against his brother, how can the love of God dwell in him? It's this invitation to recognize that it's people bound with the kingdom. Even when we find ourselves inconvenienced by the person who interrupts our path by asking for something. We are not to see them as an inconvenience or as an interruption to our day, but as one who bears the image and the goodness of God. You know, when I was in college, I remember uh, going with a friend of mine. We were going to, this is probably dating myself, Uh, we were going to go see um, Star Wars Episode One in the movie theater. And, and there we are, going to the theater, and it sold out and we couldn't get tickets. And uh, as we're walking away, um, I, see, I see a man holding up, you know, one of those, uh, you know, we'll work for food signs. And uh, I remember telling Jesus, no, 
I just, I felt that night. Give, give the money for your ticket to him. No, God, I'm a college student. I, I, don't, I don't have money. Like, no. And, and I, I started getting into this little dialogue with God. God, what if he spends it on drugs? What if, he, what if he blows it? What if, I mean, surely I can spend it better than he can. And I'll never forget what I sense God saying to me next. What does what he does with the money have to do with you? I told you, give. Will you listen to me? I did. And I wish I could tell you that that is the posture that I live from most days, but it's not. Do I see the people in my life that require time, attention, resource, as inconveniences to my way of doing life, or do I recognize that they are what it means to do life? that in our interactions of bearing witness to the grace and the mercy of the gospel, we are invited to see people not as speed bumps on the path of life, but as testimonies of the beauty and the goodness and the grace of God. Man, it's hard, right? It's hard. That's why, again, Jesus is reminding us that this law is not about doing it perfectly. It's not about, um, you know, being able to somehow be this um, person that can respond rightly in every situation. But it's about exposing this inner attitude of the heart that says, is life first and foremost about protecting myself and my way of life and my rights? Or is it about bearing witness to the grace and the mercy and the love of God. And it's here then that I think we are confronted uh, with a powerful truth that ultimately, the only way we're going to do this thing is experiencing a transformation of the heart. It's only by experiencing the generosity of the goodness and mercy and love of God that we find the freedom to do the same for others. So the question that I want to leave us with today is simply this. Where might Jesus be inviting me to surrender my rights and to be inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel? Maybe um, that's reaching out to a neighbor, someone in your oikos, and uh, telling them about the grace and the mercy of God, not just being in a hurry, but slowing down to actually see another person. Um, maybe it's choosing to show grace to that family member that's been driving you absolutely crazy, and you want to respond harshly to what they've said. Maybe that looks like going the extra mile with that coworker who demands and demands and demands, and yet trusting 
that in showing grace, in showing mercy, in choosing against the path of retaliation, we bear witness to something so beautiful, so holy, so good, that the world balks in light of the grace and the mercy of his kingdom. You know, in closing, one of the things that has always stuck with me is the call that Jesus gives us in Matthew 19, or Luke 19 of what it means to follow him. He says, and you know this well, I'm sure, that if any man would be my disciple, he must what? How often? Daily. And follow me. That if any man would be my disciple, here's what he's got to do. He's got to take up his cross daily, die to himself, and follow me. And in moments like this, it always makes me ask this question. When was the last time that showing the love of Jesus interrupted my day? When was the last time that showing the love of Jesus interrupted my day and invited me to show God's grace and mercy to another? And it's here that Jesus brings us back to the heart of the law and invites us to see in people not just another opportunity for retaliation, to not see just another opportunity to respond violence for violence, offense for offense, but to recognize that the world will change when the grace and the mercy of God flows through the people of God. And they say, there's one who's bigger. There's one There's one who's greater, and we choose the path of love. It's in that hope, and it's in that call that I want to invite the worship team to come back forward, and we'll pray. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your love towards us. We thank you for just the way in which you so powerfully reveal your love for us by your own example. And Lord, how we pray that you would grant us the grace to show that same love to others. Not because we muscled it up, not because we were good enough, not because we figured it out, but God, because you are good to us and you invite us to do the same. Jesus, we we just thank you that you are a God who looked at our offenses and chose to love us anyway. May we find the strength, the grace, and the hope to do the same to others. Lord, in each of our lives, lead us to that one way that we can bear witness to you. In your name we pray, amen.